0: call to worship this morning comes from psalm 18 just thinking through the the christmas season and i don't know about you um but in in my family especially uh you know having young children trying to make efforts to put the gospel in front of uh in front of our family because during the season the culture will put just about anything else um and and i find particularly in television and in in media there is an element of christmas but there is so much less Christ in the Christmas that's pre- presented every single year and I, I see that I'm always reminded of that as we try and sit down and find a Christmas movie or you know we listen to Christmas music that comes on uh, you know secular radio and I find that there's just such an absence of, uh, of Christ there so trying to put an emphasis on teaching you know and, and, and leading and focusing the family on we celebrate Christmas because of Christ you know there are other things that are connected to it for sure but Christ is the center point of that so this morning, um, our call to worship comes from Psalm 118, um, and it, it, where the psalmist gives thanks to the Lord for His goodness in the beginning, but then later we find a, a prophetic, uh, a, a prophetic text that is mentioned later on in the Gospels about Christ being the bil- the uh, cornerstone that the builder rejected, um, and this very cornerstone being. The Son of God, who was incarnate and was born in a manger that we celebrate this Christmas. Um, so I'm going to read uh, Psalm 118, just verses 1 through 4, and then verses 22 and 23, and then we'll pray. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we're reminded as we read from the Old Testament where the call was sent out from the psalmist for all of Israel to praise you and say you are good. And specifically to call out the house of Aaron. And we remember that that is the lineage from which the priesthood came from. Those who would intercede for the people temporarily until the great high priest would come. And if that wasn't enough for all those who fear the Lord. Because it wasn't just enough that one might be born as an Israelite that Jew and Gentile alike through the covenant of grace, inaugurated through the precious Son of God who died on the cross, regardless of lineage, regardless of heritage, for all who fear the Lord, call on His name. That we might say He is good. His loving kindness endures forever. We can say this because of the chief cornerstone, the one whom the builders rejected, one who came and was born so many centuries ago in a manger who was humbled. This baby we celebrate at Christmas that we might know God, that we might know you and be able to say definitively through your son that you are good and your loving kindness endures forever. We celebrate you this morning We ask that you'd meet with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
2: To us the sun is good. eyes Praise the Lord. In power, resurrected as we will be when he comes.
0: There we go. There we go. All right. Well, we've been talking about Jesus. Last week we started talking about Jesus. Finally, we got to it, right? We got to the good news. We started talking about Jesus last week. And we talked about Jesus, that Jesus was alive before he was born, right? And there was a word we called that when when because God He's existed forever. Anybody know what's the word we called that? What is it? Eternal, right. Is it that God has existed forever. And we know because we've talked about this that God is three persons, right? One God, three persons. Who are they? Somebody name one. God the God, the Holy Spirit, God the, God, the Father and Calvin. Nope. OK, and God, the son. There you go. OK, so God, the son, that's who we're talking about right now is Jesus. Right. So last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus, he's existed forever as God. OK, before he was born as a human. OK, before he was born as a man. So this week, we're going to talk about Jesus in his incarnation, okay, him being born as a man, which is great because what are we getting ready to celebrate? Christmas, right? Isn't that amazing how that worked. You no, know, we start talking about Jesus being born uh, as the the Son of God right here at Christmas. Now, let me ask you, how many of you have a nativity set at home? Do you know what that is? What's a nativity set? Yep, okay, may not know. Okay, what is a nativity set? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yep. Wise men are there. What else? Okay. the 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 three wise men or the three kings, right? Are there? Okay. Yep. Who else? Who else is there? Nope. Okay. You got something. You're gonna say soon. I know what. Shepherds. Okay. There's an angel too, right? What? Right. And at the center of that picture is the Son of God, is Jesus being born. Somebody put together a puzzle over here, okay, that shows that first Christmas, that shows that nativity scene, okay? And oftentimes we see that, we see at Christmas, we're like, oh, that's sweet, there's a little baby that's being born. But what I want us to see this morning is that just really feel the weight of that, that that's not just any little baby, okay, that is the divine Son of God, that is God himself, do you know that Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, long before Jesus was ever born, Isaiah said, God will give us a sign that a virgin lady will bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. And Matthew quotes this verse when the angel appeared to Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus. And and uh Ma- and Matthew quotes this verse and says, Isaiah spoke of this prophecy when he said Jesus would be born and his name would be Emmanuel, okay? Because that means God with us. And what Matthew's saying is this is God born as a person, God with us, God born as a human, okay? John gives us a little clarity on this, okay? Let me read you John 1.1. Uh, John in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. Okay? So we have this Word that's the revelation of who God is, and Jesus shows us who God is. Okay? That was one of His jobs when He came is that He would show us who the Father was, who God was. Okay? And it, what does it say? It says the Word in the beginning, right? When was the beginning? The beginning was at the beginning. What was made in the beginning? Okay, so you're thinking Genesis, right? You're thinking back in the very beginning because the first words in the Bible are in the beginning. In the beginning, that's the beginning of the book of Genesis. That's when God created everything, okay? And so what John is telling us is that in the beginning, there was something with God the Father. And he's saying this is God the Son, okay? this Remember, this is back to last week. When we talked about Jesus being eternal. In the beginning, The Son was always there. He was always with the Father. Okay? And it says not only was He with the Father, okay, but He's equal in dignity and honor with the Father. He says the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we get this picture is that God the Son is as big as God the Father. Okay? In all of His grandeur and all of His glory and all of His worth and value and all of His authority. He's as big as God the Father. Okay? And then in verse 14, in the same chapter, here's what John writes. He says, And the Word, okay, who's the Word represent? Who's the Word? Who? Okay, God? God specifically. Which one are we talking about? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? The Son, right? The Word. When John talks about the Word, he means the Son. So the Son, the Word, Jesus, became flesh. And dwelt among us. Okay? Do you get that picture of Emmanuel right there? God with us? What he's saying is the eternal son, the one who's existed before the world began, the one who created all of those rocks that are out there, the one who spoke into existence everything. That's power. That's authority right there, isn't it? How many of you can speak a tree into existence? Nope. Naomi? Naomi? You want to give us a shot? You want to try speaking a a tree into existence? No, we don't have that authority. We don't have that power, right? I mean, we're, we're doing good to brush our teeth in the morning, right? Okay, and put on shoes and socks that match. Okay, but John is saying this is God the Son who did all of these things, and he put on flesh. That means that he was born as a person. Okay, he was born as a little baby. Okay, what can babies do? Crawl, cry, what? Drink, okay, drink milk, nap, okay, they can't do a lot on their own at all, can they? They're very dependent on a mommy, right? So Jesus humbled himself, okay, in his position and glory uh, from eternity past, he humbled himself and he was born as a baby, as a person. OK, isn't that amazing to look at that at that baby that's born in that nativity scene in that manger? This is the, what we call the incarnation. Everybody say incarnation. Yeah, that's a big five dollar word. Use that at school uh, some this week. OK, OK. But what that means is that the eternal son of God who always was, who was there in the beginning and who was involved in the creation of everything. He humbled himself and he became a human, a person. OK. And John says that we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That the glory of the Son is is held in grace and in truth. All right. So I hope that helps you see just a little clearer who Jesus is, and helps you worship a little clearer, and maybe with a little more uh, clarity and passion this Christmas. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then I'll, you guys will be dismissed. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you at Christmas, probably having the freedom to do so, to be reminded, Lord, just of the wonder and the true miracle of Christmas, Father. And We speak of new life, and we speak of love, and we speak of gift-giving, Father. All of those things have their origin in the greatest gift that you gave us that first Christmas, to send us your Son, Emmanuel, who would indeed be God with us, the Eternal Son, born and made, uh, and made as a human. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who
1: oh, come? All you unfair? Can't
3: to John chapter 18. Again, I'm thankful for those that covered in my place while I was gone last week. Austin took two weeks in a row uh, to um, to preach. And if you've ever wondered, you know, why I preach so much obvi- as opposed to him, obviously not because I'm such a better preacher than Austin. Um, it's obviously not that. It's um, as much as I would like for him to preach more, I don't want to stress him out because he has a lot a lot that is going on, um, and so uh, I am so thankful for you, brother. Whenever you preach, you do such a fantastic job. But at the same time, we can't let him preach too much because then you'll prefer him even more over me. So let's, uh, there you go. So let's, uh, let's keep you where you are for now, buddy. Um, anyway, so John chapter eighteen, John chapter eighteen. So we arrive at this part in the Gospels that uh, is kind of a dark moment, not just the handing over the scourging and the crucifixion of jesus but uh, but but something else that takes place here in this text and that is when peter denies jesus such a dark moment i would i would argue that the the heinousness of peter's sin or crime has a has a very distinct sting to it probably most definitely i would say even more so than the sin of judas Judas acted as we would expect a lost person to act. Judas acted as we would expect a son of damnation to act. We, he acted as, as one that we would expect in the Latin, a mass of perdition. We expect him to act that way, but here you have Peter who acts completely contrary to what his proclamation has been as of late. So this is a dark moment, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it should be a hard text for you to work through. I think as Christians, we know the other side of the story, we know the end of it, we know the punchline, so we're encouraged, we're good. So when we peruse past a moment where Peter's going to deny Jesus, it doesn't have the same weight with us as maybe it should, because we know what happens, we know the outcome. So we're not bogged down in these dark things, but imagine you're someone who doesn't know the outcome. Imagine you're someone who, haven't, who hasn't heard this story a thousand times, and you arrive at this moment, and you're trekking through 18, 18 chapters of John, and you're seeing Jesus do all these things, and you're seeing all these men who are privileged to witness and experience all that they're experiencing, and then all of a sudden, Peter pulls the rug out from under us by denying Jesus. Peter, a disciple is highlighted, Peter who, who made this profound confession when he says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter who just moments before cut off the, the, the Roman soldier's ear and literally fought to defend Jesus. And just moments later, he denies Christ. So that's where we're going to be today. So let me read this text. This is, uh, this is represented in the synoptic gospels as well. But obviously, for uh, our purposes of moving through John, we're just going to stay here with a few references to another, another gospel. So here we have John chapter 18, verses 15. Austin uh, walked us through the handing over of Christ, the betrayal of Christ in the garden, and here we find uh, the aftermath of that leading up to the crucifixion. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and then brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the, servant and the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. If you fast forward, we're going to preach through some of these following texts next week, but we're skipping to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at that point, the rooster crowed, which is what Jesus would said would happen. Now, we know later in the story, Peter went away and he wept bitterly, the Bible says, because the weight of his offense came crashing down on him. And so we're thankful to see that in Peter. We're thankful to see a correct response to denying Christ being remorse, being repentance. And so we're in this moment here where Peter is recognized. He was in a place where he didn't belong. He was somebody not, uh, I've heard other pastors talk about, you know, he would have been known by his, uh, by his accent or by his clothing because, you know, wh- where he was as he had followed Jesus to be handed over, they would have recognized, okay, you're, you're someone, you, you're not, you don't belong here. So then they start making all these inquiries about who he is and from where he's come from and who he's connected to. So for today, here's what the objective is. I'm going to say it, then I'm going to simplify it. Because I read it this morning and thought, well, that's wordy. But here you go. To see the root and the inevitability of our failures, while also seeing the overpowering strength of grace that nullifies the depths of our depravity. Simply put, grace is greater than our sin. And abounding grace is a far, far greater outcome than a sin that rules in our life. So, what I want to walk you through today are four lessons from a failure. We don't think that way all the time. (laughs) We think of success stories, we think of those who have done great things, and we want to know how did you achieve those great things? How did you make it to where you are? Maybe you're, you know, uh, the CEO of a, some Fortune 500 company and people like that are brought into conferences because we want you to tell us the secret to, 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 to prosperity, to success. Maybe, maybe someone's the pastor of a megachurch, not that that means it's a great church by any stretch because we know plenty of those that are not, but those pastors are often brought in because people want to know the secret church growth so that you can achieve megachurch status or maybe, dare I say, celebrity pastor status. There are people, there are conferences, church growth conferences for this purpose. And so here we are looking at this failure, not a success, gleaning from this failure tips so that we can walk more closely and more consistently with Christ in order to represent him well. So lesson number one. Lesson number one is this. We can never underestimate the depravity of man. You can never underestimate the depravity of man. You can never underestimate how low a man will sink in order to appease his flesh or to bring glory to himself. You see, there is an issue that I have, and I'm sure that you have as well, that I tend to put people on a pedestal. I'm not A negative Nancy, I'm not someone who automatically automatically sees the, the, the worst in people. I'm not suggesting that you should either. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, but we have to be very realistic. There's a reason the Bible says, do not place your faith in man, because man will let you down. The more we build man up, the further and harder they, are, they fall when they don't meet up to our lofty, unrealistic, supernatural expectations. There's a reason that the Lord makes it very clear, especially when Jesus comes into the scene when John is baptizing. he says, back up, <laughs> this is a man who's, who's, whose sandal I'm not even worthy of tying. You know, everything that's been given to me is from heaven above, is from someplace else that's not of me. So right out of the gate when Jesus enters the scene... The Holy Spirit makes sure that we see a proper perspective when it comes to how we should view Jesus versus how we should view man, right? So we can't underestimate the depravity of man. I've heard it said once upon a time, it's pithy, it's, it's, it's easy to remember, but sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Now, that sounds good, and it's great i think we lose sight of that sometimes we think well it hasn't taken me to adultery it hasn't taken me to absolute defilement of my flesh it hasn't taken me to all of these routes you know maybe i've got a pride issue maybe i've got a gossip issue or whatever other respectable sin you want to insert in that place maybe i have these issues but we fail to see that that is depravity that is darkness and that's just the tip of the iceberg of where you could potentially go we see people like David in the text who would have a, a, a woman's husband, a woman whom he lusted after, he has her husband killed so that he can disguise getting her pregnant. And this is a man after God's own heart. So just seeing that alone should cause us reason to step back and say, I better, I better be careful I better be careful that I don't think that that can apply to me or that I can't reach that level of depravity. How many godly, godly men have we heard of just in recent years that have fallen away? Maybe not even fallen away. Not, 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 let's not say fallen away. Let's say godly men, and I don't mean fallen away in, in a term uh, that were never saved. Let me rephrase that to be clear. Men who have uh, left the ministry because of moral failure. They love Jesus. They're, 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 they're faithful in so many regards, but they have a moment, a moment of weakness and their depravity, their depravity lived large and lived loud and proud and then they are disqualified. I mean, we hear of that all the time because we can't underestimate our depravity. So this is a reality that is foundational to understanding the common patterns that we see in this life, especially among Christians. It's foundational to understanding the grace that abounds as well. Because when you can start seeing sin to a degree for what it is, when you can start to see where sin will lead you, and then all of a sudden you see this grace that abounds, then you start to have a better appreciation, a better perspective for the grace that's been so lavishly poured on you. But the question is, what would drive a man? What would drive a man who had seen all that he had seen, who was privileged to be an experience to all that he experienced, namely Peter and his proximity to Jesus for those years, what would drive a man to deny the very Christ that he fought for, literally? That would, that would cause him to, and I'm glad you know the answer, what, 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 what would drive a man to do such a thing? You know, because if you and I had not seen these things or we didn't, we didn't have an, an, an idea or a theological framework for the doctrine of sin and the, and, the, and the brokenness and fallenness of man, we would be flabbergasted. We would see this and say, how could, how could he do that? You know, I mean, he, I mean, he saw miracles. He heard Jesus teaching. He saw people's lives turned upside down for the gospel because of, because of Christ. And yet, in the, in the same moment, when he goes from cutting off an ear, he goes in the same moment to denying Jesus, not once or twice, but three times. What would drive a man to do that? Peter goes from profound confession, walking on water, cutting a soldier's ear off, to denying the very man he most recently and literally fought to defend. And the answer is radical, radical radical depravity does this necessarily mean that you're as bad as you could be absolutely not because you're not as bad as you could be adolf hitler was not as bad as he could be you see there's a modicum of grace that the lord extends to all the fact that anyone exists in this life for a moment without the fires of hell is grace right so we have to kind of have this approach when we get to this text. This makes sense. It makes sense. I think that, I think that there is a tendency for us to trivialize the, the, the magnitude of our sinfulness. And this is, this is hard, this first section, okay? Because this is a, a mirror that's being held up to show that the Bible does not trivialize your sin. You should not trivialize your sin. I mean, how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the garden? How many sins did it take for them to have death pronounced on them? Not just them, but through the one man's sin entered the world and affected all things. How many did it take? It took one. Because sin is that much of an, of an offense. Why is it such an offense? Because it is an offense against the backdrop of a holy God. That's why we can't afford to minimize sin. I believe if we trivialize or minimize sin, we minimize or we trivialize the holiness of God. And that's a major, major problem. But I think that's our tendency sometimes. When he's just a little sinner. Now I'm not saying you chase your kids around with a cane. You know, and beat the fool out of them. I'm teaching you not to sin. I'm not (laughs) suggesting that at all. But here's something. I think this makes sense due to the fact that it is our nature... And our natural inclination to sin. And because it is our nature, because it is our natural inclination to sin, it's hard for us to really experience or understand the weight, emotionally, the weight of that sin. We don't have the perspective that God has with reference or regards to our sin. We can't. Why? Because we're not God. We can't hate it, hate it as purely and as wholly as He can hate sin. We just can't. In fact, we love our sin a lot of the times. But God never for a moment loves our sin. It's our nature. It's our natural inclination. Even with a regenerated heart, even you being made new, even you being brought to life doesn't change your nature in the the, the sense that you still have a sin nature. That doesn't get stripped away until the completion of of all things or until you die and then you're with Christ. Think uh, Think of these stories of domesticated animals. Think of these tigers and these bears that people raise, and they raise them since they're cubs. They're raised in captivity, and for years and years and years, they never show aggression. They they never seem to be dangerous, but in one moment, they turn, and they maul their owner or they maul their trainer. They, They severely injure them or even kill them. Why does that happen? Because it's in their nature to do that. It is in their nature. Can a lion climb a tree, cup an apple, and eat it like a human? Yes, because it has the mechanics to do so. But why does a lion kill? Why does a lion tear flesh and and do all those things instead of climbing a tree, cupping an apple, and eating it? Because it's not in his nature to do so. It's in his nature to kill. It's in his nature to hunt and be predatorial. It's in your nature to sin. That's why you sin. And you are depraved. You are a wretch. And that's why these sinful actions come out of your life. So we don't perceive it the same way. We cannot perceive sin as God does emotionally. However, we can, to a degree, perceive sin intellectually. And God has saw fit by giving us an overwhelming amount of Scripture to understand that sin is bad. Okay, so the Bible's given to you, and, and, and here it is. You're, you're not going to get everything You're going to grow in wisdom and stature. You're going to start to understand things more and more as the Holy Spirit reveals these things to you. But let's be clear about one thing. The Bible labors to show you the depravity of man. It shows you that, hey, guess what? In the beginning, man's thoughts were on evil and wicked continuously. Even as believers, he shows over and over again with men who are after God's own heart and others who still choose to appease their flesh. They still choose the way of this world. They still choose to be a lover of another master. Instead of God Himself, and in this text specifically, we see that when the world squeezes, something comes out of Peter. And I want you to understand this question, this 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 context. It didn't change who Peter was, but it revealed who he'd always been. And that's something that you need to understand, or or, or just tuck away in your mind, is that COVID or political unrest or whatever's going on we've said it before if something comes out of you of your attitude or or or, or your demeanor or the tenor or whatever's going on with you and it's not godly it's not because that all of a sudden has changed who you are or changed you spiritually it's only revealed those things And I'm not saying it's revealed that, oh, goodness, you're actually lost, you know, because this happened and you succumbed to fear or this happened and you lost your temper. I'm not saying it means that you're lost. I'm saying, look, it means that you are depraved and you can't deny it, that you are a wretch in need of grace every day. Not the gospel applied once, but the gospel applied every day of your life. That's the nature of the gospel. You need it every day that with reference to the gospel, Paul says that which saved you and that by which you are being saved. The gospel applies every day. The situation Peter was in didn't change who he was, but rather revealed who he had always been. A sinner like you and me. Wrestling with his own depravity like you and me, capable of the most heinous of crimes. So what are his crimes? Well, first of all, he denies Jesus in the text. It shows us that the servant girl comes up and says, weren't you with him? And he says, no. I don't know if there was a, a, you know, him wrestling in his mind. I don't know if he said it immediately. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The fact is he denied Christ. He denied him. He says, no, I'm not affiliated or associated with that, with that man. And, and just to point this out, not only did he deny Christ one, two, and three times, but then he took companionship with others who were not in Christ, who were not followers of Christ. He chose a warm charcoal fire to remove himself from this situation. I don't know what was going on with that other disciple who the Bible doesn't name, you know, but Peter walks away and he says, I'm going to go warm myself. And I'm not saying this is the point of the text, but one, but one theologian drew a pretty interesting conclusion. He said, isn't it interesting how when we remove ourselves or make ourselves estranged or, or afar from Christ, how we tend to grow cold? And when we grow cold, we, we, we seek to find warmth from, the, from the, what the world offers us. So the, the idea, as Jake and I were discussing this earlier, as he even pointed out, is that that's the danger of removing ourselves from the presence of Jesus, is that we tend to try to find other things to warm us. But there's definitely a coldness that comes over the believer when we become estranged from Christ in our lives. Peter cursed he emphatically, and, 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 and he was insisting vehemently that he was not the one with Christ. That's in, uh, vehemently, that's in uh, Matthew's gospel. So it's not just, oh yeah, I, I, I wasn't a part of that. I mean, he labored to prove, using cursings of some sort, to prove that, no, I wasn't with him. You know, maybe he's, maybe he's swearing, maybe he's promising, maybe he's scouts honoring, I don't know what he's doing, but he's trying to convince them, hey, I'm not. And why? self-preservation self-preservation do i think that peter just didn't love jesus all along no i don't think that i think he absolutely loved jesus how many of you men have done something unloving to your wife but you do love your wife all of us how many of you wives have said something unloving or done something unloving to your spouse we're not going to say oh you just don't love them no you love them but we're sinners depravity comes up depravity comes out one theologian said this how profound and solemnly significant The Christian who follows Christ as far off will soon be chilled and grow cold spiritually. Then will recourse he be had to fleshly stimulants for warmth and comfort. And the enemies of Christ, the word, the flesh, and the devil will provide their fire, their places of means of cheer. The same theologian said this, We are less prepared for the cowardice of the one than we were for the covetousness of the other. Comparing Judas and Peter. We expected Judas and his covetous ways, his greed, to compel him away from Christ. We didn't expect that from Peter. I'm not being fatalistic or pessimistic. I am being realistic. Listen, just a few, few uh, texts. Mark 7, 21 through 23 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. We know that Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? We know that Genesis six and eight, a few verses from, I, from both ones say, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of their thoughts of his heart was only evil continually from his youth. And what is the authors here showing us? What are, what are Jeremiah and Mark and, 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 and Moses telling us? Very clearly that man is a wretch. That man is depraved. So it should come as no surprise as to why Peter did this. And his depravity manifested itself in this way through the fear of men. The fear of men can lay claim to the best of men. I was listening to some Alistair Begg. If you don't listen to him, he's a great one to listen to. Alistair Begg said this, men at their best are at best men. Men at their best are at best men. So so for us men, the the husband that we watch and we say, man, that's the kind of man I want to be. He takes care of his wife. He loves his wife. He's emotionally present for his children and not just physically present with his children. He's a a helpful spiritual leader and guide to them, not to replace the Holy Spirit at all, but he does a fantastic job there. I know men like this in my life and I revere them and I look up to them. But I should never worship them because men at their best are at best men and not meant to be worshipped because they all succumb at some point in time to the very real depravity of themselves. We have plenty of opportunity to fear today. We don't have to look very far or very hard to find something to concern us to the point of sin. Fear of what might happen if preaching truth becomes hate speech and punishable by arrest or worse. Fear of mobs trying to harm you because of your faith. Fear of the potential in becoming a socialist society under the Biden regime. Fear of being considered a racist, ignorant, or an oppressor because you aren't a social justice warrior. Fear of what will happen to us if the government says you cannot meet to worship. And we deny that mandate under the law of God. Fear of being verbally or physically assaulted for standing for truth. Look, the list goes on and on. We're afraid for children. We're afraid for a lot of things. So there's plenty of reason if we're not careful to be afraid. But we have the one reason to not be afraid, and that's that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You see, people generally will not hate you for what you believe. I want to just throw this in here just to be very clear they generally won't hate you for what you believe. Some might. But I think if you just be honest with yourself and watch the pattern of behavior, people don't get so mad about what you say you believe. What they get upset about is when you actually follow up that belief with action. When your conviction and your passion is enough that it gives birth to action in your life, that's what people can't deal with. We are in a post-modern relativistic culture. That says my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And they are free to act on their truth. But you are not. You are not. But they will get mad when you act on that belief. It's one thing to say you believe abortion is sinful. And another to plead for the life of that unborn child. It's a difference. It's one thing to say you believe God's word. And another to use God's word to hold others accountable for their own good. You can believe what you want, but don't impose that on me. Don't project that on me. See, we will tolerate or the world will tolerate your nonsensical, lofty, supernatural, deistic belief. They will tolerate that until that belief commands or demands action out of your life. That's what people won't stand for. That's when you will face opposition. And in that moment, Peter's belief at that moment didn't take him to action. So he struggled with some form of unbelief that he wouldn't be best kept in the care of Christ. I do believe the ones who are most persecuted today for practicing their religious convictions are Christians. I think it's clear. Sure, a a, a Muslim who takes another's life because they are the infidel will face, in America, will face uh, uh, consequences by law. But Christians are being and have been persecuted all over the world. And even in the U.S. for preaching preaching a message of peace. You understand that it wasn't the belief of the disciples that turned the world upside down. It was the practice of that belief. There's a difference. There's plenty of opportunity to fear. At the end of the day, we must consider the cost and the reward of standing in the face of fear... And giving in to that fear. And if we're not careful, our depravity, our sinful nature will rear its ugly head. And it will cripple us and it will enslave us. To where our belief is nothing more than intellectual or something that's not action we have to be careful with that so that's lesson number one don't underestimate the the depravity of man these lessons get much shorter with each one i promise you lesson two the greatest opportunity for faithfulness are often found in the greatest settings of difficulty the greatest opportunities for faithfulness are often found in the greatest settings of difficulty peter had an opportunity here and he blew it he blew it in monumental fashion Right, for, for millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians and non-Christians since that time for 2,000 years to read this account over and over and over again. This is a badge that he would have to wear. And I wonder if you can identify with Peter. I wonder how many times you've blown it. Maybe you had a clear softball type question or a witnessing opportunity and you just walked away. You walked away because you were afraid of men because you felt like you didn't have enough knowledge you didn't trust the holy spirit to bring things to remembrance we're all guilty of these things that's a way of denying christ by the way maybe you just experienced the the grace of the lord in the same and in the same motion you offended god with your words thoughts or actions like peter this bold man steps up and takes off the ear of a of a soldier and then moments later he denies jesus It always matters, it always matters when we choose faithfulness, always. But there are moments where our faithfulness has a farther reach as it applies to witness. And let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus said himself, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's a reason that the faith given to you as a gift is not kept just for you but it's so that they might hear and that God might be glorified in the hearing and in the presentation of that faithfulness. Let your light shine before men. Faithfulness at church and behind the safety of closed doors and our home is one thing, but faithfulness in the direct face of adversity is another thing. Listen, here's what, here's what bold faith does. You want some bullet points? Bold faith does this. It displays the worth of Jesus. Because we do things that we consider valuable enough to do. We do things that we consider worth our time. A lot of times, if it's not worth our time, we just don't do it because our time is precious. The same is true across the board, especially as it pertains to what we do in the name of Jesus. It pertains to the time we spend in the Word. It pertains to the time we spend in prayer. It pertains to the books we read. It pertains to the shows we watch. It pertains to the conversations we have. What we feel of Jesus is on display in the way that we spend our efforts and our time, even our finances. So it displays the worth of Christ when we're bold in our faith. It also serves to embolden other believers. I am strengthened and encouraged when I see other people standing boldly for the Lord. It encourages me. It stirs something in me. Like a soldier watching, watching you know, who's, who's you know, uh, sent home or who is injured or something, watching his, his, other, his other, you know, platoon or, or, or the group or the other soldiers, his brothers in arms, you know, watching them fight and I'm out there I'm like, I want to get in the fight. It does that for me. It could also do this. It can make an antagonistic scoffer of the gospel a believer in that gospel. There's a lot of stories of martyrs, martyrs who have been bold, and we read these stories and they encourage us. They make us sad sometimes, but they encourage us. There's a story of a group of 40 men who were martyrs, martyred in a place which is now Turkey called Sebastiae. So there was this pagan ruler named Licinius. He ruled the eastern half, sorry, uh, he he ruled the... Eastern half of the Roman Empire in A.D. 307 to 323. three twenty three. It was his evil intent to eliminate Christianity from the lands under his control, and especially for fear of treason among the troops. One of his supporters was a cruel man by the name of Agricola who commended the forces in the, uh, in the Armenian town of Sebastiae, which is now eastern Turkey. Among his soldiers were 40 devout Christians who wielded equally well the sword of battle and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, obviously. These men formed an elite bodyguard when it came to Agricola's intention or attention that they were Christians. He determined to force them to renounce their faith and bow down to pagan gods, and he gave them two alternatives. Either offer sacrifice to the gods and earn great honors, or in the event of your disobedience, Be stripped of your military rank and fall into disgrace. The soldiers were thrown into jail to think it over. That night they strengthened themselves, singing psalms and praying. At midnight they were filled with holy fear upon hearing the voice of the Lord. Good is the beginning of your resolve, but he who endures to the end will be saved. That's what they kept hearing as they were singing songs and reciting psalms. The next morning, Agricola summoned them once again. This time he tried to persuade them from flattering words, pray, with flattering words, praising their valor and their handsomeness. When the soldiers re- remained unmoved, they were again thrown into prison for, prison for a week to await the arrival of Lucius, a prince of some authority. During this time, they prepared themselves for the trial of martyrdom. One of them, Syrian by name, exhorted his fellow soldiers in this way. God so ordained that we made friends with each other in this temporary life. Let us try not to separate even in eternity. Just as, we have been found, just as we have been found pleasing to a mortal king, so let us strive to be worthy of the favor of the immortal king, Christ our God. Syrian reminded his comrades in arms how God had miraculously helped them in the battle and assured them, that he would not forsake them now in their battle against the invisible enemy. When Lysias arrived, the soldiers marched to the interrogation, singing the psalm, O God, in thy name, save me, as they always did when entering upon the field of contests. Lysias repeated Agricola's arguments of persuasion, alternating between threats and flattery. When he saw that words were of no avail, he ordered the soldiers sent to jail, to be sent to jail while he thought up a form of torture sure to change their minds. After prayers that night, for a second time, the soldiers heard the voice of the Lord. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Be bold and have no fear for short-lived torment which which soon passes. Endure. Endure that you may receive crowns. The next day the soldiers were led to a lake. It was winter and a frosty wind was blowing. The soldiers were stripped of their clothes in order to stand through the night in the freezing waters. A guard was set to watch over them in order to tempt the holy warriors of Christ. Warm baths were set up on the side of the lake. Anyone who agreed to sacrifice to the idols could flee the bitter cold waters and warm his frozen bones in the bath. This was a great temptation which in the first cruel hour of the night overpowered one of the soldiers. Scarcely had he reached the baths, however, than he dropped to the ground and died. Seeing this, the rest of the soldiers prayed and more earnestly to God. Help us, O God, our Savior, for here we stand in the water and our feet are stained with our blood. Ease the burden of our oppression and tame the cruelty of the air. O Lord, our God, on thee do we hope. Let us not be ashamed. Let us us all understand that we who call upon thee have been saved. Their prayer was heard. The third hour of the night, a warm light bathed the holy martyrs and melted the ice. But this time, all but one of the guards had fallen asleep. The guard who was still awake had been amazed, listen to this, had been amazed to witness the death of the soldier who had fled to the baths and to see that those in the water were still alive. Now, seeing this extraordinary light, he glanced upward to see where it came from and saw 39 radiant crowns descending onto the heads of the saints, Immediately, his heart was enlightened by the knowledge of the truth. He roused the sleeping guards, and throwing off his clothes, he ran into the lake, shouting for all to hear, I am a Christian too. His, <clears throat> his name was uh, Aglias, and he brought the number of martyrs once again to the number 40. The next morning, the evil judges came to the lake and were enraged to find that not only were the captives still alive, but that one of the guards had joined them the martyrs were then taken back to prison and subjected to torture. The bones of the legs were crushed by sledgehammers. The mother of one of the youngest, Helaton, stood by and encouraged them to endure the trial. To their last breath, the martyrs sang out, Our help is in the name of the Lord. And they all gave up their souls to God. Only Meliton remained alive, though barely breathing. And taking her dying son upon her shoulders, The mother followed the cart on which the bodies of the soldiers were being taken to be burned. When her son at last gave up his soul, she placed him on the cart with his fellow athletes of Christ. The funeral fire burned out, leaving only the martyrs' bones. Knowing that that Christians would collect these relics to the eternal glory of the martyrs and their God, the judges ordered them to be thrown into the nearby river. That night, however, the holy martyrs appeared to be blessed Uh, uh, appeared to the blessed bishop of Sebastia and told him to recover the bones from the river. Together with some of the clergy, the bishop went secretly that night to the river where the bones of the martyrs shone like stars in the water, enabling them to be collected to the very last fragment. So also do the holy martyrs shine like stars in the world, encouraging and inspiring believers everywhere to be faithful to Christ, even to the end of days. Sometimes... Sometimes faithfulness can make an antagonistic scoffer a believer in the gospel. Sometimes mistakes we make are mistakes like self-confidence. We get into these difficult situations or in our lives and and, and they set us up for failure. Self-confidence, which is no friend to Christianity. However, confidence and reliance... On Christ and the power of his gospel are the makings of a man of God and a woman of God. Another common mistake we make that sets us up for failure is expecting progression without opposition. We ignore the inevitable reality of opposition. And that is to ignore the clear, the clear warnings of scripture. For anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Another common mistake we make that sets us up for failure is we underestimate the enemy. We do not have an enemy that sleeps. He is not disengaged. He's not disinterested, and he's not unmotivated. He always looks for a fight, and it's a fight to the death. He's likened unto a lion that prowls around looking for someone to devour. That's what we're up against. And that's an enemy who knows your nature and knows your depravity and capitalizes on that all the time. But in these moments, you have great opportunity. In these difficult settings, great opportunity for faithfulness that has such a reach to impact the world for Christ. Next lesson is this. Abounding grace is a far better outcome than ruling sin. Peter denied Jesus, this is not a difficult text, there's not much, not a lot of things to, little tricky nuggets to, to, to reveal, um, other than show some pretty obvious things, one is that abounding grace is a far better outcome than ruling sin, and these moments where Peter's depravity manifested itself through the fear of men, you see Peter sink, sink to the pit, but that's not how Peter's story ended, and I find this to be very encouraging because the story doesn't stop there. Austin alluded to it earlier when he went to the Book of Acts, specifically in the Book of Acts, chapter. Um, so, where Acts chapter eight, I believe it to be. Actually, it's in Acts chapter. Uh, sorry, Acts chapter four. Uh, but I'll get to that in, in a minute. So the abounding grace is a far better outcome than ruling sin. Listen to Romans five, eighteen through 20. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Talking of Jesus, obviously. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So here's the point of this, is where Peter fell and Peter made this monumental mistake in denying Jesus, just as you and I deny Jesus in different ways. You have the, the story that comes up later as it develops is that Peter goes and he stands before this Jewish council, and I'll get into that in a minute. But Peter's life didn't end right there. Peter's, Peter's story didn't end Right there, you see grace that abounded, that grace that covered his life, that far surpassed the potency of his own sin. And that's the beauty and the hope that we have as the believers, is that we can chalk up all our sins daily. But the grace of God far outweighs and far outlasts any amount of sin that we chalk up. Consider this for a moment. One sin is enough to separate us from God. One sin. doesn't matter the sin. I would even say just the very nature that we have. The very nature has separated us from God. I mean, I think that's what David said. He said, look, in sin, my mother conceived me. And that means that he was born estranged from God. He was born with a wicked nature. James 2.10 makes it clear. Look, one sin separates us. That's it, just one. However, where the law condemns us, the one act of righteousness, the cross, the gospel, is powerful enough to justify us and release us from the condemning effects of our own sin. And this is fantastic, fantastic news. This is the heart behind the old hymn written by Julius uh, Johnston in, in in the early 1900s where she wrote, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount I poured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, grace Grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. I think that's an important lesson to learn is that though we see our sin and we are remorseful and repentant of our sin, let's not lose hope because the grace that abounds in our life is a far greater story than the sin that often rules in our life. That's not just something to encourage you, but something that you need to encourage others. Peter failed and committed treason on a scale of supernatural proportions. And the grace of God, which is wider and stronger than our sins, brought him to brokenness and repentance. And as one pastor said before, brokenness is often the key to usefulness. Brokenness is often the key to usefulness. Last lesson. God will often break you in order that he might use you. He doesn't have to. God uses whoever, however he wants. God ordains and plans all the moves and the actions of men. But we can't ignore the fact that God brings men oftentimes through these dark seasons where he might break them. And I think he breaks them and then, he, and, and then so that they have to rely on him. Just like the shepherd would break the legs of the sheep in order that the sheep learn to trust the shepherd. So Peter denies Jesus, and I want to ask you this, I want to ask you if this right here sounds to you in any way like a man who was crippled any longer by his fears. I want you just to hear some of what Peter says. As he talks to, uh, first he 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 offers this sermon. He offers this this talk at Solomon's portico. But I want you to hear this. It's just a a few verses here, looking at verse uh, seven through twelve of Acts chapter four. This is Peter standing before all those that he was afraid of. Just just days before, now he's standing before them, and he has this newfound boldness. And he says these words. He says, and when, well, let's go to verse 5. On the next day, their rulers, talking about the council, elders and scribes gathered together. And then on the next day, there was, sorry, the, next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, and the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do these things so they're seeing people healed they're seeing miracles performed and so Peter and John are brought in before this council and we're not talking just a few people from what i understand it was a lot of pre people it was a who's who of power players in this in this area who had all this power to do things or to start a series of events that would end Peter's life and this is what he says to them the same guy who denies jesus he says to them, they ask, what, what, by what name or power are you doing these things? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, rulers of the people of, of, and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone which that was rejected, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. And at that moment, the scripture says they recognized their boldness. They saw them as untrained, uneducated men who would turn the world upside down, and they just couldn't figure it out. They just couldn't figure it out. How do they respond? They want to kill them. They want to kill him. But Gamaliel comes in and he says, hold on, hold on. If it's, we've seen this before. If it's false, it'll be proven false. But if it's true, be careful because you might be standing against God. So we see Peter, a denier, a, a wretch, a sinner who, who commits cosmic treason. <laughs> he denies Jesus. I think blundering harder and falling harder than Judas himself. Just moments later, he's standing before all of these and you hear the voice of what seems to be a different man. Because I think for Peter, God graciously, as he does for you and me, broke him. Maybe, maybe a mirror was held up for Peter and says, Peter, before you get too confident, because Peter has said things before that got him in trouble, Right? Peter was quick to get out of the boat. He was quick at the transfiguration, saying, Hey, let's let's just stay here for a while. No, be quiet. And now Peter's saying something that they can't ignore with a boldness that we can't ignore. And I think there's a lesson that we can't ignore, and that's that God will often break us in order that he might use us. And I want this to be encouraging. And here's your final application. Many believers feel that they've messed up to such degrees that they are damaged goods. That they cannot be used by God. You know people like that in your life. I know people like that in my life. I have family. I think, man, I've made these mistakes. I've done these things. I've been in all these marriages. And I've, I've, you know, I've just made bad decision after bad decision. And I'm just lucky to be in Christ. Yeah, you are lucky <laughs> to be in Christ. You are fortunate to be in Christ. But since when does the Bible ever teach us? Well, since you've made your mistakes, you can't be a part of this work. I mean, have you seen the lineage of Jesus lately? Have you seen, have you seen where he comes from? Have you seen the, 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 the people that are involved in his family line? You've blown it. I've blown it. But the broken shards of shattered clay pots are often the sharpest. Brokenness often paves the way to usefulness. The broken and contrite are the makings of men and women who are ready for war. The broken are able to lay aside their best plans and rest in the sovereign decrees of God. I think brokenness is good and necessary. So praise God that he has not only broken you, but that such brokenness leads to godliness and godliness leads to a gospel-centered life and ministry. These are good things because all of us, all of us, and I think to say if we are fortunate, God will break us. If we're in Christ, part of the Holy Spirit's role is to say, this is what you've done the Holy Spirit does what brings about conviction and the response to conviction, the response to that brokenness is that you are refined, that you are sharpened, that you are lifted up, that you become that much more effective as a weapon, as an instrument in the hands of a sovereign good God that has rescued us, that has redeemed us and whom we serve. I think that should be encouraging. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed today. Father, we are thankful that things transpired through the redemptive narrative the way that they did. We are thankful. (laughs) We're thankful that we get to stand here and see what Peter had to go through, what you ordained for Peter to go through, because so much good Has been the result of that. Or we know. The scripture says. It was according to what your hand and plan. Had predestined to occur. That Jesus would be handed over. To be scourged and crucified. So Peter did what your decree had said. That he would do. But it doesn't alleviate. Peter. It doesn't take him off the hook. He is still sinned. He is still guilty. He's, He's still messed up. Lord, what valuable lessons we learn from these monumental failures. Father, I pray that what it does for us, it paints a very vivid, a very clear picture of your grace. And Lord, that it would encourage and embolden and ignite greater passion within the lives of the believer so that they might be excited about being used, though we are broken. That we might be sharp, that we might be utilized, that we might seek out opportunities and then capitalize on those opportunities. That when the, when the softball questions for personal evangelism are, are tossed our way, that, that busyness and schedule or, or competence or lack thereof, however we feel, doesn't, doesn't derail us or, or cause us to, to, to hide away or to suppress the truth. But that we would find boldness, knowing that you have made it your business to use wretches for your glory. And I don't mean vessels of wrath, although you do that. I mean the saints who are broken, who are dirty, who are messed up, who are inconsistent, who are stiff-necked, who are hardened in many ways. Who are arrogant and pride and prideful and deceitful and unfaithful in many ways. Lord, and, and just broken and a hot mess and Lord, you, 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 you use us, which I think is just a picture of your, of, of, of your divine grace and your power and your glory. We thank you for that, Lord, and may we be encouraged by that. In Jesus' name, amen.